your Bibles with you. You're going to be in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 today. We're going to look at verses 17 to 24 of Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Please hear this public reading of God's word. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of of God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this chance to gather here to worship with your people. Uh, we're thankful for your word that we get to open and to study from uh, today. And we're thankful for this passage in Acts chapter 20 as we get to look at just a portion of Paul's farewell address today. And I, I pray, Father, that we would be convicted by this passage, that we would be challenged by this passage but I do pray that we would also be changed by this passage, uh, that we would be able to apply some of what we learn from Paul's life in this passage to our own lives. And uh, I do pray that we would be freshly amazed again at the glory of the gospel message. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we get to look at a portion of Paul's farewell address that he gives in Acts chapter 20 with the Ephesian elders. Uh, it's, you could call it a, his goodbye sermon or a farewell address, and we get eight verses uh, essentially today. But I think it's important for us to remember, before we jump into our text, it's important for us to remember that Paul spent almost three years of his life in Ephesus. And uh, Mark has told us that it was perhaps the longest time he spent anywhere was in Ephesus, and this was perhaps his most fruitful ministry anywhere was in Ephesus. And you can remember Mark said a few weeks ago, I think it was, that Paul perhaps spent 3,000 hours teaching in Ephesus. I still cannot get over that. I mean, that's just absolutely mind-blowing that Paul would spend 3,000 hours teaching them the Word of God. And this is just a quick little rabbit trail here at the beginning, but I just want to feel how amazing that is. Uh, I have this book club where I meet with these guys pretty much every other Monday. We've been doing it for almost five years, and Grant and Wes are the only two guys that have been with me since the very beginning. So they've almost made it for five years, and I try to estimate about how much time we've spent together. We've had some long nights together, Maybe we've spent 300 hours together, maybe 300 hours in five years. Well, it would take us 45 more years to get to 3,000 hours. I mean, this is mind-blowing. But all that to say, Paul has a deep love for the Ephesian church and for these Ephesian elders. That's what I want us to hold in the back of our minds. Paul loves this church. But now as we begin to think about our passage, the context of our passage, and preceding our passage, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's, he's sailing to Jerusalem, and he sails right past Ephesus. He decides not to stop in Ephesus. He goes past Ephesus to Miletus, which is about 30 miles south of Ephesus, and he stops in Miletus there. And here's, I have a couple questions before we jump in, but the first question would be, if Paul loves the Ephesian church, which he does deeply, why doesn't he stop 
in Ephesus. Why doesn't he give this farewell speech to the entire church at Ephesus? Why does he sail past Ephesus and go to Miletus? Well, the Bible gives us an answer for that in the preceding verse to our text. So Acts 20, verse 16, gives us the answer. It says this in Acts 20, 16, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So their answer is, he's in a hurry. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. For Pentecost, likely because there's going to be a lot of people there in Jerusalem for Pentecost, likely there's going to be a great ministry opportunity for the Apostle Paul, so he's in a hurry. Even though he loves the church, he feels like he can't stop and see everybody at the church. Another pastor just said it probably would have been too gut-wrenching to try to say goodbye to every single member of the church. I mean, you can imagine if this, you thought this was the last Sunday you'd ever be here at North Avenue Church and you would never see the believers in this church until heaven, how gut-wrenching it would be to go around and say goodbye to every single person. Paul's probably thinking, it's going to take too long, too gut-wrenching. So he sails past and goes to Miletus. But now, even though he's in a hurry, he stops in Miletus, he summons the elders. Verse 17 of our text, first verse of our text, it says this, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So now we see Paul's pastoral heart here with earnestness, with authority. He summons these elders to make this 30-mile trek south. They're like it would have taken them a day, maybe a little longer than a day. He summons them to come and meet with him for what he believes is going to be a final chat with them. Now Mark told me that, it's a quick footnote, likely he would see these guys again in the future. But Mark, maybe we'll talk about that more later. But the point is, he thinks this is going to be the last time he's going to see them. And they come down. And this is, we know then this is going to be a weighty and somber and moving scene with Paul and these elders here. But here's my second question. If Paul's in such a hurry, why does he still take time to call the Ephesian elders to make this 30-mile trek south and see with them? Why, if he's in such a hurry to get there, which he is, why does he still take time to see the Ephesian elders. Well, I think he limits himself to the one thing that Paul believes was absolutely, utterly indispensable, and that is talking with the church elders. He's thinking, I cannot pass up seeing the elders one more time. Why? Because as the elders go, Paul is thinking, so goes the church. As the elders go, so goes the church, so I must see these elders again. I must strengthen them. I must encourage them. I must build them up, because if I can build them up and strengthen them, it's going to roll over and will benefit the entire church body if I can just get to the elders. So as the elders go, so goes the church. So I haven't even told you the title of my sermon, haven't even gotten into the main points of my sermon, and yet I already have an application for you. It's a bonus point, a bonus application point here at the beginning, thinking on this subject. As the elders go, so goes the church. What's the application for our church? Well, the application would be, if you are a member of this church, the application would be that you would pray for the elders of this church. We are in desperate need of your prayers, that God would keep us faithful, that he would keep us faithful to the word of God, that he would keep us growing uh, in sanctification, that we would be growing in humility, that we would be killing pride, that we would lead and love our wives well, and we would lead our families well, that we would faithfully serve North Avenue Church. That would be wonderful. But not only that, I was thinking we should pray for future elders in this church, that God would raise up godly men in the future of this church. And I'm not even just thinking a few years from now, I'm thinking way in the future. If Jesus doesn't return, we should be praying you know, 40, 50 years in the future, as long as this is a church. Our prayer would be that there would always be godly men leading this church. Many of you may remember Mark mentioned Robert Murray McShane over the summer series in 2 Timothy, and Robert Murray McShane, who died at 29, Scottish minister, he famously said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. And Mark talked about that, gave his application. He said, you know, when we think about our neighbors, our, our family members, co-workers, maybe roommates, their greatest need is our personal holiness. They need to see a life genuinely devoted to the Lord. They need to see a life, you know, overflowing with joy in the Lord. Well, apparently one time when Robert Murray McShane, I guess, said that, that his people's greatest need is his personal holiness. Apparently, somebody asked him a return question. They said, well, okay, that, I, I got that, but what about you, Mr. McShane? What is your greatest need? And apparently he said, my greatest need 
is the prayers of my people. I need my people praying for me. So that's bonus point application. So now the beginning of verse 18, it says this, and when they came to him. So this shows that these elders took their calling very seriously. They didn't make this 30-mile trek south, and now you have this plurality of elders. They're all sitting around. The Apostle Paul, we have the scene is set here in Paul's farewell speech. Now, we as readers of the book of Acts, we get to have a front-row seat. I just think this is amazing. We have a front-row seat. We get to see Paul. We can see all these elders around him. We get to listen in and hear Paul give this farewell speech to these elders that he loves. So what I want to do is I'm going to read verses 18 to 21. I'll give you a few brief comments, and then I'll give you my title and the basic application, I mean the basic outline of my sermon. So let's read verses 18 to 21. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So a few comments. The first thing I would say, in our text today, Paul starts his farewell speech by pointing backwards. He reminds them of how he lived amongst them pretty much that, the whole three years. This is how I lived among you for those three years. And then the end of our text today, he points forward at the end of our text. He, he points forward to the future. But he starts by pointing backwards. And when he points backwards, it's important to note that Paul is not simply you know, reminiscing with them. He's not just saying, oh, remember all the good times we shared back in Ephesus. That's not what he's doing. This is intentional. This is purposeful what Paul is doing. It's, a, it's as if he's saying, you guys want to serve the Lord for the good of the church, you need to remember my example, and then you need to follow my example. You know, as I follow, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the idea here. Paul is saying that. It's, it's as if he's saying, my life has been my lesson for you guys. My life has been my lesson. Remember my example, follow my example. So that leads into the title of my sermon. The title of my sermon is simply Learning from Paul. Learning from Paul. Mark had a sermon a few weeks ago where his was Learning from Apollos. This one today, learning from Paul, and the outline is going to be nine lessons, nine lessons from Paul's life that we can learn from our text, nine lessons from Paul's life. We're going to learn from the Apostle Paul today. The first lesson is found in verse 18, which says, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. The first lesson from Paul's life is Paul's consistency. The first lesson is Paul's consistency. We see the consistency of Paul's life. We look at it again, middle of 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia. This is how Paul was the entire time he was there. There's no inconsistencies in Paul's life and teaching. He was utterly consistent. This points to his inner integrity in his character. He had inner integrity in his character. He was never one man in one place and a different man somewhere else. He was the same man publicly teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus as he was over dinner with somebody's house. He was the same man across the board, utterly consistent in his character. If you had hidden cameras following the Apostle Paul around, everywhere he went in Ephesus, you would have seen a man who was utterly consistent in his character. So my question for us would be, are we consistent in our character? Do we have inner integrity in our character? Are we the same person on Sunday afternoons in this church as we are on Monday afternoon when no one else is around? Are we the same person with our family as we are publicly? Are we consistent? In our character, I remember with, I was with Mark and Jerry and uh, myself. We were on a Zoom call doing Hebrews together over a year ago, and we were talking, and Mark said he remembered being with Jerry over a decade ago at a church. I think it was Jerry's former church, and he was talking with Jerry, and Jerry pointed out a man in that church who was in his 70s, and he was a very godly man. And Jerry turned to Mark, and he said, you know what I love about that man? 
is his consistency. That's what I love about him. Is he's, it's so impressive about him is he's the same. He's the same, Jerry said. Every time you see him, he's just utterly consistent. He's just steady, faithful, consistent, this man. And it's a character trait that Jerry told Mark he greatly admired. And Mark said he just never forgot that because Mark just said he didn't usually think about you know, consistency as this great character trait. But that's the idea, just consistency in our character. Here's another illustration on this to maybe grasp a hold of this. It comes from Eric Alexander, a pastor a retired minister from Scotland. He was early on in pastoral ministry. I think he was an associate pastor. And he was in, in the office with the senior minister of that church, and they were talking. And the senior minister uh, said to him that he had been learning something recently, and this is what he had been learning. He said, I am learning just how important it is to be just as diligent in preparation and just as prayerful and wholeheartedly committed to the task, you know, whether I am addressing five people or 500 people. That's the idea. He wants to honor God in his preparation and his prayer, whether he was addressing five people or 500 people. It didn't matter. He wanted to be the same. He wanted to honor God equally in both settings. And that's the idea. Are we consistent in our character? Second lesson. I'm going to reread again from middle of 18, so hopefully we can kind of get this. Middle of 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Here's the second lesson. Serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. Second lesson. He served the Lord. He served the Lord. Paul's allegiance to his Lord determined the conduct of his life and ministry. You see, Jesus had purchased the Apostle Paul with his own blood. He had ransomed him. He had redeemed the Apostle Paul. And now Paul wants to honor the one who's died in his place. He wants to honor the Lord Jesus because Jesus had saved him. Jesus had redeemed him and ransomed him. It reminded me of 2 Timothy 2 that we looked at over the summer where Paul says no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I mean, once a soldier puts on the uniform, right, he, he can't live the same as he once lived before. He has to honor the one who's enlisted him. He wants to please his commanding officer. Well, how much more so for us as Christians? We have been bought with Jesus' blood. He's covered us with his righteousness. Now we want to honor the one who's died. We want to serve him with our lives. I mean, our business now is to do the master's will. So Paul, he served the Lord with a single-minded interest, which was the glory of the Lord. He embodied a life well-lived for the glory of Jesus Christ. Which just reminded me of a story that Mark told me years ago. Mark was in Bible college. It was a little over an hour away from here, and he would come back pretty much every single weekend while he was in Bible college uh, to the Watkinsville area. And I remember I would talk to him about Bible college and his friends and all, all kinds of different things. But one of my favorite stories to hear about was his favorite professor, Dr. Reese, whom he has mentioned here before. Uh, he had a deep love for Dr. Reese. Dr. Reese was a very godly man. They didn't always agree theologically, but they had a deep love and respect for uh, for each other. So one day, Mark was on campus at Bible College. He was walking across campus. If I remember this story correctly, Mark was walking across campus. He saw Dr. Reese up. I think he was sweeping a porch on campus somewhere. Mark just looked up. He saw Dr. Reese sweeping the porch, and Mark said he looked up, and he said he knew, he knew that Dr. Reese was sweeping that porch for the glory of God. He just knew Dr. Reese was sweeping for the glory of God. You see, no matter what Dr. Reese was doing, whether he was teaching or sweeping, he wanted to do it for the glory of God. He was serving the Lord Jesus with his life. And that's the idea. Are we living for the glory of God? I mean, does our allegiance to the Lord determine our conduct? The way we speak to our spouse, the way we speak to our children, the way we interact with coworkers, are we seeking to honor the Lord? Are we working heartily unto the Lord, seeking to serve Him? Because He died for us. We want to honor and serve Him. Third lesson, again, repeating again from middle of 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. Third lesson, Paul was humble. Paul was humble. He was a humble man. A character trait likely not far from Paul's mind was humility. I have some questions on this, though. One question would be, Paul had a brilliant intellect. One of the most brilliant men of all of church history has to be the Apostle Paul. 
If he had such a brilliant intellect, which he did, how could he remain humble? How did he stay humble with that brilliant intellect? Well, let's think about Paul's humility for a second. I think we see it in his own self-appraisal. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, written about 55, 56 AD, he said he was least of all the apostles, least of all the apostles. Then about five years later, the book of Ephesians, he said he was least of all the saints, least of all the saints. In the very end of his life, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he said he was the foremost of sinners. So here you certainly see Paul's humility. I think he grew in humility as his life went on. So the question remains, how could this former proud Pharisee become this humble apostle of Jesus with his brilliant intellect? How could he remain humble? Well, I would agree with Jerry Bridges who said it was Paul's understanding of the grace of God. He had a firm grasp on the grace of God to him, which Jerry Bridges defines God's grace as God's blessings, plural, in Christ to those who deserve his curse. God's blessings to those who deserve his curse. Paul knew that he deserved the wrath of God. He knew that God had had mercy upon him and saved him, and he couldn't get over that. That gripped him, that humbled him to the ground. So do we have a firm grasp on the grace of God? Do we go back to our conversion and think about our life, how God had saved us, has rescued us from the wrath of God? You see, the humble man, one writer says, knows what he deserves, and every day he revels in the amazing grace of God that has sheltered him from the terrors of God of God's justice. It reminded me of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who at the end of his life, he was very weak, but he was only seeing a few people at a time, and a friend of his, who was a much younger man, a pastor, came to see him, and they spent some time praying together. And after they prayed, this man was getting ready to leave. If I remember correctly, this guy's name was Vernon. He was getting ready to leave. Martin Lloyd-Jones called Vernon over for one last word with him, and he said to him, he said, I want you to remember I am only a sinner saved by grace. I am just a sinner saved by grace. That's the Apostle Paul. He's a sinner saved by grace. They had a firm grasp on the grace of God, and that humbled them down. Second question would be, Paul had all kinds of abilities, incredible gifting that the Apostle Paul had. How could he stay humble with all the ability, all the gifting that he had? Well, I think he had applied 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, to his own life. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he applied to his life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, who sees anything different in you? What do you have? that you did not receive. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul knew every ability, every gift, it's a gift from God. How could he boast when it's a gift that God had given him? He simply wanted to be a good steward of the gifting God had given him. So the application for us would be, are we good with people? Or do we have a type A personality? Do we like to get things done? Are you good with computers or electronics or with mechanical stuff or with musical stuff? Are you a people person? Are you creative? Are you good with children? Whatever abilities, whatever gifting you had, it's a gift from God. And we should always remember it's a gift of God. And we want to be faithful stewards of that gift, but we never want to boast about that gift. So again, application now as we think. We want to learn to grow in humility. We want to cultivate humility, and we want to weaken pride. It's going to be a lifelong battle with the sin of pride. We want to weaken pride and grow in humility. I think John Stott said that pride is our best friend, and humility is our biggest enemy. So we want to see humility as this dear friend, and pride is this big enemy in our lives. So how are we going to grow in this area? Well, I think number one, the obvious one, would be we pray about this. We just pray about this regularly. Lord, keep me humble. Make me humble. Guard me from pride. Guard me from self-righteousness. Help me to be gripped by the grace of God. We need to remember that we are sinners saved by grace. But I, I think we need to make uh, regular trips to Calvary. We talk about it all the time at our church. We need to go to Calvary. We need to go to the cross of Christ. I and mean, it's so good for us spiritually to go there at the cross, to see Jesus suffering, I mean, to survey the cross at Calvary. I mean, just to think on it, to see the Son of God bleeding and dying. And when he begins to bleed, what does he do? He, he begins to intercede. They, they said, I think J.C. Ryle said when, when the, uh, the great sacrifice began to bleed, uh, the great high priest began to intercede for his people. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See his compassion for the thief, this great sinner next to him, who says, you know, remember me. 
uh, and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. See the darkness come over the land, and is God uh, indicating his presence in judgment? I mean, just be moved as we survey the wondrous cross. As Isaac Watts said, when we survey the wondrous cross, what happens? We pour contempt on all our pride. We are humbled uh, to the dust. We need to make regular trips to Calvary, but I think we also need to remember that pride is one of those sins that always seems to be crouching low at the door. It's just waiting for its opportune time to come out and to uh, rear its ugly head. So I would say when someone gives us praise, when someone praises us, we need to recognize that pride is going to be within us. It's going to try to reach up and snatch that praise and steal it for itself. It's going to try to steal it every time. So we need to do, as one Puritan author said, we need to transfer the glory to God. When someone praises us, we need to transfer that glory to God. I mean, glory be to God. We need to give thanks that God has used us, but we need to guard ourselves from pride and transfer that glory to God. Here's some questions to think on that J.R. Packer says, if we, we can help determine if we're growing in humility. He says, am I able to joyfully perform tasks in my church that have little or no visibility? Do I regularly credit others for their labor? Are my thoughts toward the difficult people in my life infused with grace? Are my prayers usually on behalf of other people? Do I cut short thoughts of comparing myself favorably with others? Do I honor others with my thoughts? And he said, if we can answer honestly yes to those questions, then we are growing in humility. So fourth lesson, again, rereading this, middle of 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Fourth lesson, he shed tears. He shed tears. What does that even mean? He shed tears with them. Well, I think this has been probably the most convicting for me as this little one. He shed tears. I think it means that Paul did not go to them simply as a scholar and teacher to instruct them. No, he wept and prayed with them. I think it means that Paul got emotionally and affectionately involved with the people that he was ministering to in Ephesus. I think he was knitted to them in love. I think he had a deep love for them. I think it means that Paul was a man of great empathy. I think it means he rejoiced with those who rejoiced and he wept with those who wept. I mean, can you imagine if there was a couple in that church who was praying for maybe a lost relative and Paul is praying and the whole, much of the church is praying for, the, for this person and say a few months later this person becomes a Christian. Can you imagine Paul hearing that news? He would have rejoiced. He would have had tears of joy. He would have rejoiced as much as anybody in that church on that good news. But can you imagine if a couple lost a young child, maybe a one-year-old baby dies? Can you imagine Paul going to comfort that family? He would have wept with them. He would have wept as much as anyone with them. Paul loved the people in Ephesus. John Piper said in his sermon, I think the sermon was from 1989, he said he left home in 1964 uh, for college, and then in 1980, 16 years later, he became pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church. He said over those 16 years, he said he only remembers crying two different times. I think one was the death of his mother. He cried twice over 16 years. He became pastor in 1980, and then he says this, since I became one of the shepherds of this flock, I cry a lot more, and it doesn't get less as the years go by. So the question for him was, why did I only cry two times over those 16 years? This is what he said. I wasn't involved with people as I should have been. It's an indictment on my life. The reason why I didn't cry more than twice is because I wasn't involved in people's lives. But once I became a pastor, once I got involved in people's lives, I cry a whole lot more. So if we want to love people like Paul, we need to be involved in people's lives in order to cultivate this love for people. A couple stories to illustrate this. One comes from Dr. Joel Beakey, who is a pastor. He's, he's well known for someone who loves the Puritans. And in his sermon on this text, he had just become a pastor. He was in his mid-20s, very young, 
man, and there was a couple in his church who had a 13-year-old daughter who died, unexpectedly died suddenly. He is called to go to the house to comfort them. He's in his 20s. He never had anything like this happen. He took his Bible. He goes to the house. He walks in. This couple is grieving the loss of their 13-year-old daughter. And Dr. Joel Beakey said he was overcome with emotion. He just broke down weeping when he walked in the door. He said he got his Bible out. He tried to read Scripture with him. He said he bumbled through the Scripture reading. And he said he tried to pray, and he just bumbled through the prayer. He said he, he left. He felt like a complete failure, he said. But about a week later, he said that he got a letter in the mail from this couple, and he said, thank you for weeping with us. Thank you for weeping with us. That's the Apostle Paul. That's exactly what he would have done because he loved the people. Second story, again, from uh, Eric Alexander. Uh, he was, I don't even know if he was a pastor yet, but he spent the summer with this couple in Ireland. The, the man was a pastor there in Ireland. It was just some church in Ireland. He was staying with him. And one day he came home, and the couple was already there. And uh, he got out of his car, he went in, and he just walked into the living room. And as he just barged into the living room, he realized that this couple was down on their knees, and they were praying together on their knees. And he had that awkward moment, like he froze, what do I do? He slowly started to back away as he realized they were praying. But then he realized that they were weeping, they were crying. So he froze in place, and he wanted to just let them finish the prayer, and then he was going to talk to them and see if there was anything he could do to help them. So they finished the prayer, and this pastor rose up, and Eric Alexander said, you know, is there anything I can do for you? And this is what the man said. He said, oh, I am sorry. We were just praying for our people. And we often find ourselves weeping over them. I mean, here's a faithful couple, this faith pastor. He said, no, we don't even know his name. And here they are, faithfully loving the church they're a part of. They're praying. They can't even pray for their people without crying. That's the Apostle Paul. I think that's what he's saying here. So I say, do we have this type of love and affection for the people of this church? I hope that this will convict us and I hope we will grow in this and we will, we will be able to knit ourselves in love to each other. Fifth lesson. I'll just read from, from 19 now. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So fifth lesson about trials, stealing this from a commentator who said Paul was steadfast in the face of trials. That's the fifth lesson. Paul was steadfast in the face of trials. He seemed to have an unshakable joy in God that you couldn't steal away from the Apostle Paul. He had an unshakable joy in God that I think helped him to be steadfast in the face of trials. And there's always going to be trials and tribulations in the Christian life, and Paul certainly was very conscious of that. So my question for us would be, are we steadfast in the face of trials, or do trials tend to overwhelm us? I'm not saying we don't weep in the trials. I just talked about weeping. Yes, we can weep. We pour out our hearts to the Lord in prayer. We weep and cry. But I'm saying, do, do those trials tend to overwhelm us? Do, do they fill our gaze? And all we can think about is this trial in front of us. When trials come, does that cause us to complain and to be irritable? Or do we remain steadfast? Do we keep on trusting God when we face trials? Certainly, we are thankful for Jerry Edgar for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons I am very thankful for him is what he's taught us about suffering. He just mentioned it up here that our trials are tailor-made, right, for us. They're tailor-made to make us godly. I mean, Jerry has taught us about the goodness of God in trials as much as anything he's taught us. He taught us about heaven a bunch too, but he's taught us about the goodness of God in trials. And coming from a guy who spent almost 40 years in a wheelchair, he says the wheelchair is a blessing in his life. I mean, how powerful is that for us? the goodness of God in trials. We must remember the goodness of God. We must not lose sight of the goodness of God in trials. Suffering, as Elizabeth Elliot says, is never for nothing. God is always at work in the trials. He's conforming us to the image of his son. He's going to reveal sin in us. He's going to drive us to the throne of grace to pray. He's going to comfort us in our affliction as he promises. So I would just say, are we living 
in light of the promises when we face trials, soaking on the promises of God to help us as we go through trials. Sixth lesson, verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So the sixth lesson is this sort of two-part lesson. First part is he uh, did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. Second part is he taught them publicly and from house to house. So he didn't uh, withhold anything that was profitable, and then he taught them publicly and from house to house. So take that first part. He didn't uh, hold back anything that was going to be profitable for them. Paul refused to dilute the Word of God. He refused to water down the Word of God. He's not going to trim the message of the Bible. No, if it's part of God's Word, he's going to teach it because it's going to be good for the people. It reminds me of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Every bit of the Word of God is going to be profitable for the people of God. No matter how countercultural the Bible is, it's all going to be profitable for the people of God. And this is what Paul was governed by, this principle. If it's good for the people, I'm going to give it to them. I would just say I'm so glad we do expository preaching where the Bible sets the agenda every week. The Bible is going to set the agenda. And I love the fact that that's how we have done it since the beginning. Second part of this, though, is he taught them publicly and from house to house. Taught them publicly and from house to house. So the idea is that Paul took every single opportunity that he had to teach them and to build them up. Every opportunity, whether it was publicly in the hall of Tyrannus or making tents or he's having dinner with them, he's seeking to do them spiritual good with the Word of God. He's going to build them up with the Word of God no matter where he was. The application here would be this. Sharing God's Word presupposes knowing God's Word. I mean, later he's going to say that he declared the whole counsel of God. In order for him to declare the whole counsel of God, it means he must have been soaking in the Word of God, and he knew the Word of God. So that sharing God's Word presupposes knowing God's Word. So here's the application. It ties in with Mark, what Mark said last Sunday. Are we growing in our knowledge of the Word of God? Are we studying it in more depth year by year? Are we seeking to understand it better, and are we seeking to apply it more and more in our lives? Are we growing in our knowledge and our application of the Word of God? I mean, this is a, a treasure trove that we're never going to exhaust. I hope that we just delight to study the Word. The second part, though, Paul was determined to seek their best the whole time. No matter where he was, he was seeking to build up. He was seeking to edify the people of God with the Word of God. And I would just say, is that how we are? Can we truthfully say that when we're going to a gathering with other Christians, are we thinking in, in advance, I want this to be a time, or even praying, I want this to be a time where we mutually encourage each other's faith. Are we going into it trying to build up the people of God with the Word of God? Just every, every setting that we're going to, we should be thinking in advance. I want to encourage somebody. I want to build people up in the faith. And this is a, an interesting take from, from James Boyce. He says this. He says, God's diligent servants have always recognized that what happens on a one-to-one -one basis or in small groups is often in the providence of God of much greater significance than what happens in large mass meetings. And I think if you've been involved in small group type settings, you know the truthfulness of this statement that James Boyce is saying. There's something about gathering in a small setting, an intimate setting where you're praying with and for each other, how powerful that can be, what an encouragement that can be. So the application here would be if you're a member of this church, and uh, I would just say, I hope that you will get involved in something, something extra in a church, a family group, community group, discussion group, if we still do them, and book clubs, something like that, to commit yourself to at least one, because it will be such an encouragement to your soul, but not only that, you will be an encouragement to the people in those groups. Seventh lesson. Let me read verses 20 and 21 back to back so you can see this. Verse 20, how, do I, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. He didn't withhold anything that was profitable, but here, seventh lesson, he majored on the gospel. 
He majored on the gospel message. He majored on the themes of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I just love that. No matter where you met the Apostle Paul, you met him in the Hall of Tyrannus, you met him making tents, you had dinner with him over a meal, eventually and every single time he was going to come back to what? The good news of what the Lord Jesus had done. He's going to come back and keep beating the gospel drum over and over and over, urging people to repent toward God and put their faith in Jesus. He just majored on the gospel message. He was dead earnest about this gospel message. And he, he spoke to everybody about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what one commentator said. He, he spoke to everybody about the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminded me of a John Piper story where he, he goes jogging, uh, I think three times a week, or he used to, and he carries with him, uh, tracks with him. And he said he, he's running, and he's got Bermuda shorts on, and he's sweating. He said, I look like an idiot, he said. And he's running, and he said there was one time there was a bunch of guys that were discussing politics, and John Piper just ran right in the middle of him. He said, can I tell you guys about Jesus? And he just told them about the gospel message. I mean, that's the Apostle Paul. He can't help tell people about the gospel. And I would just say, do we major on the gospel message? I mean, can we truthfully say that we major on the gospel message? Maybe a ridiculous illustration of this, or maybe help keep this point, is from our son who's almost three years old. He makes us laugh all the time. But we'll let him watch a show or something, and I'll say to him, okay, buddy, we're going to watch a little bit of this show. And he'll say, no, a lot. No, a lot. We're going to watch a lot of that show. So when you think about belittling the gospel or think you only need a little bit, hear Michael in your head saying, a lot. We need the gospel. We need a lot of gospel. We do not need to move away from the gospel. We need to major on the gospel like the Apostle Paul did. Charles Spurgeon said, I received some years ago orders from my master to stand at the foot of the cross until he comes again. He has not come yet, but I mean to stand there until he does. That's the Apostle Paul as well. So now these final two lessons, and Paul's going to point forward to the future. He's pointing forward to the future, verses 22 and 23. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Eighth lesson, Paul trusted in the providence of God no matter where it led him. And look at 22 again. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. He knows the Holy Spirit testifies that there's imprisonment and afflictions awaiting, but he doesn't know for sure what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem, and yet Paul's content. He trusts in the providence of God, no matter where it's going to lead him. So I would just simply say, do we trust in the providence of God, even though we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future, or do we grow anxious about the future, or do we trust in his providence? Are we content not knowing exactly what's going to happen in our future? And my guess is at this point in time, these elders are beginning to be moved and stirred as they listen to Paul's passion as we get up to verse 24, this incredible verse, which is our ninth lesson today. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What a verse. Ninth lesson, Paul wants to be faithful to the end, testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He wants to be faithful to the end, testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Jerry read from Hebrews 12 at the beginning. We all, of us as Christians, we all have races to be run, every single one of us, and I hope we all want to be faithful to the very end of our Christian races. Paul wants to be faithful to the end, running the race, and then he wants to die and go to be with Christ, which is far better. He wants to be faithful to the end, drop dead, go to his reward. I hope that's us. We want to be running, you know, flat out the finish line, being faithful to the end, all the way to the end. And look at the beginning of verse 24. Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. What we see here is Paul's priority in life was not his life, said one pastor. John Stott said his overriding concern is not at all cost to survive, but rather that he may finish the race. 
and complete his Christ-given task of bearing witness to the good news of God's grace. Again, he wants to tell everybody about the gospel of God's grace or the gospel of the grace of God. And he would rather die than stop preaching the gospel message. I mean, you're going to have to kill him before he stops preaching the gospel message. And the question is, why? Why is he willing to suffer death if necessary? Why is he willing to suffer all kinds of persecution to not stop preaching the gospel? Why? Well, I think it's because the gospel of the grace of God has gripped him and has filled him with wonder and amazement and awe and glory. He's just so captivated by the gospel of the grace of God that it just keeps him going to the very end. I mean, you can put him under house arrest, chain him to a Roman soldier. What's he going to do? He's going to tell the Roman soldier the gospel. He's going to tell him the good news of what Jesus has done. You switch him out, bring in another Roman soldier. What's he going to do? He's going to tell him the good news of what God has done. And then what happens? The entire Praetorian Guard, the entire Imperial Guard in Philippians Here's the gospel, what, what Paul says, because he's obsessed with his gospel message. He's going to tell everybody about the gospel message. You can strip him of his clothes, beat him with rods, throw him in prison, fasten him in the stocks. What's he going to do? Midnight, he's going to pray. He's going to sing for the joy of his salvation because he's been captivated by the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel was Paul's daily supply source for joy, for hope, for strength, for endurance. One pastor said, since Christ was his greatest treasure and the gospel message was the greatest message to tell, then any amount of suffering and obedience to Jesus was worth it. I would just say, does the gospel grip us? Does it move us? Does it fill us with wonder? I mean, maybe you've been a Christian for five, ten, or more years, and you kind of, you move on from the gospel and just say, yeah, I know the gospel. Or do you come back again and revel in the amazing news of what God has done in Christ? I mean, we are in desperate need of God's grace. I mean, absolutely desperate need of God's grace. If you're not a Christian, our need is absolutely desperate. That's what Jerry Bridges would say, desperate. And God owes his grace to no one. Absolutely none of us deserves his grace. And yet he has sent his son to die in our place. It's just staggering, this gospel message. Does it stir you and amaze you and fill you with wonder and, and push you on in obedience to finish our courses faithfully? So let me just go over the lessons again to see if we're, we, we've got these. Number one, Paul was consistent in his character, a man of inner integrity. Number two, he served the Lord. He wants to honor the one who's died in his place. Three, he was humble because the grace of God had gripped him. He was with him in tears. He, he had affection and love for the people. Number five, he was steadfast in the face of trials, remembering the goodness of God in trials. Six, he didn't withhold anything that was profitable, and he taught them publicly and from house to house, always wanting to do them good spiritually. Seven, he majored on the gospel. And eight, he trusted in the providence of God no matter where it would lead him. And nine, Paul wants to be faithful to the end, testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. So as we transition, get ready for communion. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 23 to 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I would say if you're not a Christian, we would say we would ask you to abstain and not come forward and partake. Uh, you don't need the symbol. You need what they signify. You need Lord Jesus. You need to repent towards God and put your faith in Jesus, and Jesus will save you. He'll give you new life in Christ. He's died in our place. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you, give you rest. 
So that's what you need first before you come. If you're a Christian, you're not living in unrepentant sin and you're not at odds with another believer, we would ask you to examine yourself first and then come forward, partake of the elements, take them back to your seat, and uh, go back rejoicing at the finished work of Jesus. Let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his life. It's a challenging life to study, convicting life to study. I just, you, you, I just pray that you would make us more like him. Give us a greater love for the gospel like Paul had. Give us a greater love for the people of this church like Paul had a love for the Ephesians. And Father, we're thankful that we can take communion. What a, what a privilege it is to partake of the Lord's Supper as a church family. And So Father, thank you that we get to remember the Lord Jesus. We get to remember his broken body and, and shed blood. and uh, What a gift this is. And I do pray that we would uh, spend some time considering what Christ has done as we get to partake in communion today. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.